0: Because Lee's publisher wanted a story featuring the main character's scout as younger woman. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: The weak global economy. The, economy did it easy. the volatility and the upswings and the mood. Sort of a deflationary
2: phenomenon again. Money
0: for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. A rally in oil-propelled stocks higher, treasuries declined and the euro advanced. Disney's profits, top analysts' estimates, and Hang Seng considers selling its 10.9% stake in China's industrial bank. This morning on Money for Nothing, it's all about looking into the crystal ball to see what we might find. David Goldman of the Reorient Group joins us uh, for our markets discussion. And uh, after that, the Reuters Breaking Views team, John Foley and Peter Tal Larson look into China's crystal ball to see what could unfold this year. Yeah. <laughs> Stuart Aldcroft of City Trust uh, joins us as guest host this morning. Good morning, Stuart.
3: Good morning, Renita.
0: So Stuart, you have been warning us about uh, falling oil prices. What do you have to say now?
3: It stopped. <laughs> <laughs> it stopped. It seems to be going back up again. So um, maybe we've reached the bottom, but I hope David's going to tell us about yep,
0: that. Yep, yep, in 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 the first crystal ball segment of the morning. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, the Dow gained uh, more than 300 points as US stocks rallied on high oil prices and greater optimism over a deal to renegotiate Greece's debt. The Dow Jones stood at 17,666, up 305 points. And the broad-based S&P 500 powered higher also by 29 points to 2050, while the Nasdaq Composite Index gained 1% to 4,727. U.S. Benchmark Oil rose for a fourth straight day, jumping 7% to close at $53 a barrel. And uh, Brent Crude jumped 4% to close at $57 a barrel. So what to make of this resurgence? Here's Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab. I actually think the rebound in commodities to some degree is giving people some comfort that this is more a supply story than it is a global demand story. And I think a continued plunge might have been uh, additionally unsettling. So I think, interestingly, it may be a part of, of that. The first lift we got in oil, which came when you saw how big a drop we got in the rig count, came in conjunction with the dollar still going up. So you can divorce the two over the short term if there are specific supply reasons why you might get a rebound in the price of oil. And I I think that's what we're seeing right now. Germany's DAX rose 0.6% while the CAC 40 in France gained 1.1%. Britain's FTSE 100 rose 1.3% and in Athens the main stock market index spiked 11.3%. Most stock markets in Asia closed higher too. The ratings agency Standard & Poor's is to pay nearly 1.4 billion U.S. dollars to American authorities to settle a legal claim that it knowingly inflated its ratings of mortgage investments. The ratings were issued over several years on the subprime mortgage bonds that triggered the financial crisis of 2008. The U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder said that the agency's actions had been a factor in the crisis.
2: On more than one occasion, the company's leadership ignored senior analysts who warned that the company had given top ratings to financial products that were failing to perform as advertised. As S&P admits under the settlement, company executives complained that the company declined to downgrade underperforming assets because it was worried that doing so would hurt the company's business. The strategy did major harm major harm to the larger economy, contributing to the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression.
0: And in company news, Walt Disney reported quarterly pro- revenue and profit ahead of Wall Street estimates as more people visited its theme parks and it sold more toys based on the hit movie Frozen. Net income rose 2.18 billion or $1.27 per share for the first quarter and that's uh, up from uh, 1.84 billion or $1.03 per share a year earlier. Here's Disney's CEO Bob Iger.
1: Just a great, great quarter for the company across the board. Clearly, I think it um, is a is a great testament to a strategy to focus on franchises and our great brands. Uh, parks and resorts obviously benefit from that, but also some operational excellence and clear demand around, uh, around the holiday period. You know, just about anywhere you look at it, the company had a great quarter, and I think again it says a lot about the properties, the assets that this company now has.
0: The company has said that it will delay the opening of Shanghai Disneyland until next year. The $5.5 billion U.S. dollar theme park in the city's Pudong district was intended to open this year, but sources close to the project said that it won't be ready until the first half of 2016. No word yet on why the project has been delayed. And Lenovo says that uh, revenue surged to over 14 billion US dollars in the December quarter compared to the same period a year ago. Sales of mobile phone handsets more than doubled after its purchase of Motorola. Hang Seng Bank is considering selling its stake in China Industrial Bank, uh, possibly raising a massive 37 billion dollars. Bloomberg reports that the local lender may sell about half its holding with the rest to be sold uh, at a later date. Shares of the Fujio Bank, uh, based bank, I should say, have uh, risen 54% in the last year. Hang Seng bought a 16% stake in the bank for $1.6 billion in 2003. So, Stuart, uh, you know, let's uh, talk about Greece for a second. You know, Greek officials are pushing the idea of debt swaps uh, to avoid the need for creditors to accept haircuts on the country's 315 billion euro foreign debt. Uh, what do you think of this? Uh, is it, uh, is it um, just an excuse for putting things off? I
3: think they're putting out a few ideas to see what's going to be most acceptable. Uh, What is very clear is that there is a big um, campaign going on from the Prime Minister, the Finance Minister of Greece, both of them are travelling around to all the... Uh, main um, credit countries and talking to them about what they could do, uh, getting a few ideas, and then they'll go back and uh, meet up in Athens and probably make some decisions.
0: All right, let's uh, bring in uh, David Goldman, who joins us this morning. He is the managing director of the Reorient Group. Good morning, David. Good morning, Renita. So, David, you know, European equities jumped on hopes of a Greek resolution. What do you make of this?
1: The Greeks are playing a game of chicken from which they uh, would have to back off. Their entire banking system is being supported by the European Central Bank, and they had the unmitigated goal at the height of their apparent repudiation of European debt terms to say, oh, by the way, we do expect the European Central Bank to carry on supporting our banks, which are suffering massive runs right now. So. Were they to go it alone, uh, they would not only lose their banking system, uh, if they would exit the euro, the currency would go into freefall, it would be a catastrophic situation. They're well aware of this, so uh, they're highly motivated to come up with a compromise, and I think the initial fears that this would come to a crash were quickly allayed by uh, Greek behavior
0: yeah I think uh, uh, the uh, George Osborne sort of indicated or hinted towards this uh, uh, you know in a meeting that he had uh, with a Greek uh, finance minister yesterday, um, and some analysts are saying you know that you, the Greeks have done an about face since then i wouldn 't say they 've done an about face but perhaps they 've backed down as a result of the meeting.
1: The Greeks are going to try to compromise for the time being. We called this in our last report a dress rehearsal mm. for a crisis. You can't keep Europe at uh, – Southern Europe at 25 percent unemployment indefinitely. You need basic structural labor market reforms which seem politically infeasible. So the alternative is to have various crises. At the point that the Greek political problem uh, spreads to Spain or perhaps Italy, at that point – We're going to have a very serious problem on our hands, and it's an extremely high risk for the future. I see the euro going to parity against the dollar uh, over this year. I don't think the European disease is at all cured, but the particular Greek case now, I don't think is going to be the detonator for a crisis.
0: So how realistic is it then that uh, the contagion could spread to Spain or Italy?
1: Well, you had a million people in the streets in Spain under the so-called Podemos Party In response to the Greek elections, that was just a demonstration, of course, but the sense of frustration at the extremely poor economies in southern Europe is something that will continue to build. It's getting worse, not better. So the risk at a 12-month horizon, I think, is still extremely high, and I would look at Europe as an underweight in a global equities portfolio.
0: Okay, so let's talk about oil, uh, Stewart's uh, favorite subject these last couple of weeks. Not, not just Stewart's, <laughs> Not just mine. Come on. <laughs> okay. After a seven-month drop of more than 50%, speculation is rife that oil prices might have found a bottom. Uh, what do you think, David? Has it?
1: Oil prices recovered today for exactly one reason. The New York Times ran an article saying that there might be an agreement between Russia and Saudi Arabia over Syria, according to which... Saudi Arabia would help lift oil prices and help Russia if Russia would agree to certain Saudi terms about the disposition of the Assad regime in Syria. It's very rare that we get a scenario affecting capital markets that comes out of a pulp novel, but this is one of those rare occasions. (laughs) The Saudis really are the arbiter of the oil markets. They can decide at least in the medium term where the oil price is, and they've done this all for geopolitical reasons. They've got problems with Iran They don't like shale oil replacing them on the world market. They don't like the United States exiting the Middle East because the United States believes it's energy independent. They don't like the Russians supporting their enemy, President Assad of Syria. So they killed several birds with one stone by dropping the oil price. But that's all a negotiation. And precisely because it is an exogenous intrusion into markets from the world of geopolitics, it's extremely hard to predict.
3: So, so, David, with the new king in Saudi, would he have been somewhat involved in the events you've just described prior to uh, his um, half-brother dying?
1: Well, I'm afraid one would have to be a fly in the wall in Riyadh mm. to know that sort of thing, and we simply don't have uh, the privilege of that information. We're sitting there from the outside waiting to see what they do. So I'm extremely cautious about offering a forecast of so the negotiations with Russia go sideways then obviously the Saudis could put more pressure on the oil price. I don't think it's the sort of thing that you should try to speculate on on your home computer.
3: Do you think that Obama was um, giving them guidance on negotiations with Russia?
1: I think that the United States has been uh, sitting this out. The United States has largely been uh, withdrawing its interest in the Middle East, and I think the Saudis decided upon such a dramatic action precisely because... They felt rather alone without the guarantee of their American ally, and they decided to take matters into their own hands. The
3: mm-hmm. oh, price of oil is, of course, key uh, for the rest of the world's economy, isn't it?
1: Oh, so. uh, absolutely. We've been in the camp that, the, that a very sharp drop in the price of oil is not good for the world economy. Two-fifths of American capex in the S&P 1500 is in the energy sector, and that could drop by half. The collapse in CapEx would more than outweigh the positive consumer effect. Uh, and I would take note that the first numbers we've had following the oil price drop for consumer spending in December have been very disappointing indeed. Both retail sales and personal consumption expenditures were down from the data we have. It appears Americans would rather save that additional windfall, then go out and spend it. Not surprising given that the median American household has a cash reserve of 21 days.
0: Mm -hmm. So David, uh, when would it be time for the investor to say, okay, uh, how am I gonna make some cash off of this and invest in energy stocks? Uh,
1: That's extremely difficult to call precisely because you have the exogenous geopolitical Mm -hmm. element, which really none of us are qualified to predict. A lot of very clever people got uh, caught the wrong way as oil prices crashed. Um, I don't think that uh, individual investors should try to uh, day trade or week trade oil stocks in here. Um, I think that uh, the best places to invest uh, in the world are really Asian stocks. The Asian economies are doing quite well relative to the rest of the world. In the case of an oil price crash, the Asians benefit the most. So I believe that there are very good reasons to be in stock markets, Uh, quite apart from the oil situation, which is unfortunately outside our capacity as uh, outsiders to the Saudi royal family to protect.
0: Okay, so let's dig into that a little bit. Where in Asia and what sectors?
1: The consumer and tech sectors in China have been trading really independently of world markets and trading very strongly indeed. Um, Companies like Tencent, as an example, Uh, have done quite well. Secondly, I think the Chinese banks are a very good long-term investment. Even though they have uh, substantial credit problems, as we measure them, uh, the the trading at five to six times earnings is really an exaggerated perception of risk in the Chinese banking sector. I think that at least the uh, H shares, which have lagged behind the A shares, have a good deal to go, and and in the meantime, they're paying a 6 to 7% dividend. I think the insurers have gotten a bit pricey, relatively.
0: So, you know, with Chinese banks, I mean, that's an interesting one. So given the credit problems that, you know, you've mentioned, what is it that makes them such a great investment? Well,
1: it's simply a question. There's no bad investment, just a bad price. And the question is whether the credit risk has been priced too highly. We did an exhaustive analysis of the balance sheets of uh, 2,500 traded Chinese public companies, and looking at the likelihood of default within that universe and likelihood of default uh, in the real estate universe, we think that the Chinese banks at five times earnings, uh, one times book, are simply much too cheap. Uh, they're, uh, they've got bad problems. They probably should be trading eight times earnings, not 15 so, times earnings like uh, so banks So given elsewhere.
3: that many of them are listed in Hong Kong as eight shares, that should suggest that the Hong Kong market should be picking up quite a lot of that.
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. We think the Hong Kong market has got a great deal of potential. I think that the railway shares, which got beaten up after the announcement of the cancellation of the Mexican high-speed rail line, uh, are are an excellent opportunity here. Because but they've
3: bounced back very sharply after the merger was announced.
1: Yes, they, they have indeed, but they, they took a hit this week with the announcement of a cancellation of a major project in Mexico. Nonetheless, I think with the one belt, one road, new Silk Road concept will find there are many, many projects indeed uh, on which they will uh, earn revenues. So I think it's a good opportunity to dip into the rail shares.
0: And David, um, everyone's expecting more volatility in general this year, but uh, do you suppose that we might see less volatility in these Asian markets that you talk about?
1: It's very hard to know because a large component of the Asian markets trades day-to-day pretty much along uh, with world indices. Uh, the Chinese consumer sector has tended to be relatively independent. If you want a low volatility trade, uh, that's where I would look.
0: Okay. Stuart, anything else to add?
3: No, I think David's has given a very
1: good summary so far.
0: Yeah, the best part was his uh, Pulp Fiction analogy. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not
1: my fault. That's simply the way it plays. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, you write it well? The thank o- you so much. The old economy. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank that you, is David man. Goldman. He is the managing director of uh, the Reorient Group here in Asia. It's crunch time to achieve universal suffrage. We have to quickly seize opportunities to boost economic development. And there's much to do on livelihood issues.
3: The Chief Executive's
2: 2015 Policy Address has unveiled a range of measures to pursue democracy, boost the economy, and improve people's livelihood. We can all have a positive role to play, so let's work together to build a better society that provides good jobs, prosperity, and stability.
0: The time is now uh, 8.21 a.m. And let's take a quick look at the numbers before we move on to the next segment. The Nikkei is up 199 points to 17,535. Australia's ASX index is up 74 points to 5,741. And Seoul's Kospi up 10 points, or half a percent to 1,962. In currencies, 1 euro currently buys you 1.14 U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar is... Is worth 117 yen and the one pound sterling will buy you 11 hong kong dollars and 74 cents so it's now time for the the next crystal ball segment uh, of today's show reuters breaking views have released a host of predictions for the year and we are now joined by uh, two of their highly es- esteemed soothsayers <laughs> Uh, John Foley, the China editor, and Peter Tal Larson, Asia editor. Good morning, gentlemen.
2: Good morning. Hi, Renita.
0: So, uh, regulatory bodies uh, fined global banks on LIBOR rigging last year, racking up millions of pounds. Uh, The question is, though, is this club of banks too big to fail? What do you say?
2: Well, we're, um, we've looked at this and I think we're getting to a point, in my view, we're getting to a point where six years, six and a bit years after the uh, 2008 crisis, uh, regulators are getting to the point of f- solving the too-big-to-fail problem. Um, and uh, they, they came up, after the crisis, they came up with this list of banks, which they called, uh, it's a real mouthful, they called them Globally, Global Systemically Important Financial Institutions, or G-SIFIs.
0: Yeah, we um, don't need enough jargon. Yeah, to, no, exactly. Industry, another right? another <laughs>
2: acronym to, uh, to add to the alphabet soup. Um, and that list actually, it was supposed to be sort of a bit of a list of shame, as in sort of these are the two big to fail banks, actually became a sort of slightly... Uh, you know something a source of pride, sort of bragging rights to say you were on that list because then you were too big to fail, and no government would ever allow you to fail. but I think that the, 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 the balance is shifting there a bit, and what 's happening is that the the, the demands that have been placed on those banks, particularly those banks the thirty year old banks that are on that list are uh, are, are growing, and um, the regulators are po- pretty clearly pointing the door to the exit to basically say this is how you ended up on the list. These are the things that you could do, make yourself smaller, make yourself less interconnected, make yourself less international. Uh, And if you did some of those things, you would drop off the list and some of the requirements on you would fall away. So we think one of the things that's going to happen this year is that actually that club of too-big-to-fail banks is going to shrink for the first time in six years.
0: And that is a good thing because, uh, you know, the world wants to have banks that are not too-big-to-fail. Is that right?
2: That's exactly right. Yes, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the key conundrum of the crisis was really how do you uh, avoid a situation where governments have to come in and support banks which get into trouble, and I think we're finally getting to the point where, where banks have enough capital and they also have enough enough other sort of methods and mechanisms to um, to basically make sure that the losses are felt by their shareholders and their creditors.
3: But Peter, than isn't by one of the problems that many of the banks? have too many different businesses under mm-hmm. their umbrella and therefore they have an, an inability to understand every part of what they're doing and, and the break up of banks has been uh, talked about quite a bit. There was a really good article in the Financial Times last week about um, maybe a, an asset swap between two major global banks mm. so that one concentrates on investment banking, the other concentrates on retail banking. Wouldn't that be a better solution? Well, I think these, kind, these are the kind of discussions that people are now beginning to have. I think, I think
2: the initial response after the crisis was just to sort of hunker down and say try and resist all regulation. But what's happened is this regulation has come through and if you can actually remove the sort of the, the taxpayer put Mm. from these banks, then they really have to justify their size to shareholders and say, well, the reason we're in all these businesses is because it actually makes financial sense. Yeah,
3: but are we, we're we talking really about global banks. We're not mm-hmm. talking about Chinese banks. Is that right? No, the
2: Chinese banks are... Um, I mean, they are sort they're of... They're even the bigger. S- <laughs> some of them are on the list, but they're not uh, subject to the same requirements. No, we're talking yeah. about, about the US banks, and I think particularly yeah. some of the European banks that, yeah, that expanded banks outside too. Europe mm. will um, maybe reassess the, the spread of their operas-
3: operations mm. as a result mm. of this.
0: Mm. Mm. So we will never see, we will never see another lehman Type crisis at least in you the Western world? You never
3: say never in this, yeah, this world. This is why I'm asking. Um,
2: I think we will see one uh, only when everybody who remembers the last one has uh, been safely pensioned off. <laughs> All uh, right. Or paid back. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, what about China? I mean, John, um, you suggest that... Uh, China might need a history's biggest spring clean. W- what do you mean by that? So,
4: under the current leadership, Xi Jinping, the president, there's been a lot of work towards getting people to behave better. There's been lots of pressure on state owned enterprises to be more disciplined. We're currently seeing a new clampdown on things like counterfeiting. But there hasn't really been anything done to sort out the legacy of bad behavior the mm. things that, you know, the guilty consciences from people who've been routinely breaking the rules for the last two decades, the empty houses that no one wants to buy, um, and the bad debts in the banks that. The banks say are only about 1% of their loans, but I've yet to meet anyone in China, including at the banks themselves, who believes that's the case. So what you really need is to come clean. You need to, like, you need to admit how much bad debt there is in the system. You need to work out what to do with the 49 million or so empty houses. And you need to work out how to get people to come clean and stop trying to cover their tracks. mess.
0: will that ever happen in China? Will they ever be able to come clean?
4: Well, part of this prediction exercise is really to say what we think should happen, not what we think will oh, okay. happen. Unfortunately, because <laughs> none of these solutions are very palatable. So, for corruption, one of the one of the big solutions is to have a corruption amnesty on, on misdeeds of a certain level, but that's very unpopular because it, it, it's seen as letting people get away with it. For housing, it's not really clear what you do unless you bring in some kind of government entity that can kind of buy houses that no one wants and redistribute them to the poor at low prices, which as a socialist would be fantastic, but, you know, as a marketist would be obviously anathema.
0: Um, It's hard to know. Now, what about when it comes to companies? I mean, sometimes uh, you know, one of the reasons that companies want to list abroad outside of China is perhaps to get away from this reputation of the Chinese company. I mean, look at Alibaba. Uh, But then you have uh, you know, the recent news and you know, counterfeit goods, which uh, is just part and parcel of uh, business in China. Well, the,
4: yeah, there really is no getting away from the Chinese government, and it's almost worse for private companies like Alibaba because they need to have great connections, otherwise, they wouldn't survive in the first place. And we're now seeing companies like Alibaba, of course, with this counterfeiting dispute with one of the regulators. Minxing Bank, which is the biggest private bank in China, its president has been has resigned. uh, It's thought to be because he's being investigated for corruption. So private companies too are really woven tightly up with the state and that's a risk investors have probably overlooked.
0: Stuart, your thoughts? uh, Yes,
3: I'm interested in this simply because uh, again there have been reports to suggest that some of these companies, these names that you've just mentioned, John, um, thought they were above all that, and clearly what's happening is the government is just pegging them back quite sharply, uh, reminding them that they're human after all.
4: That's partly true. And the reason they thought they were above all that is because everybody does it. Like, mm. if you removed every bank president who's guilty of some kind of misdeed, there would be no-one left to run at any of the banks or any of the companies. So people have felt the safety in numbers. And what the current leadership is trying to do is show that that's not the case. But that's very destabilising for investors because you never know who's going to be next. You don't find this stuff in the annual report.
3: Yes, and, and there isn't much in the way of research material that is out there that can be, be relied upon. <laughs> because
4: well. the whole system is by its very nature. So, so isn't that
3: your job to provide more?
4: Well, we're rummaging through as many dustbins as we can, but it's going to take us some time, I'm afraid.
3: Yeah, I thought there was a smell in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> That's
4: Peter. All right. oh, Peter.
3: <laughs>
0: well, thank you for joining us uh, this morning with or without the smell. Um, that is uh, Peter Tal Larson is the Asia editor and John Foley, the China editor of Reuters Breaking Views. So here we are just about at the end of the show. Let's take a quick look at the number the Nikkei is up 217 points to 17,552. Australia's ASX index uh, up 75 points to 5,741. And Sol's Kospi up 16 points to 1,968. Gold is currently at $1,262 per ounce. And Brent crude oil at $57.91. So, Stuart, here we are. Parting thoughts uh, for the day and midweek.
3: i look in a few dust spins, obviously. John's got a few good ideas there. <laughs> yes, I think the markets are, are going to be very volatile for a while, and and it's going to be quite difficult for the individual to, to actually make a lot out of that, and just to be aware of that.
0: All right. Well, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you. and every Wednesday. That is Stuart Aldcroft, and he is uh, Chairman at City Trust Limited. And I'm Renita Malhotra Hora, wrapping up for Money for Nothing this morning. I'll be away over the next few days, so Richard Harris will be here uh, playing host and uh, giving you lots more financial news and analysis over the next five days. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy with relatively low visibility, sunny intervals during the day with maximum temperature of around 19 degrees. Currently, the temperature is 16 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 87%. And here's the news with Sam Butler. State television in Jordan has confirmed that a Jordanian Air Force pilot who was captured by Islamic State militants has been killed. The group released a video that purported to show Muath al kasasbeh being held in a metal cage surrounded by oil. Then a fuse is lit and the pilot is pictured being burnt alive. He was captured after he crashed near an IS stronghold while taking part in US-led operations over northern Syria in December. The Jordanian government has vowed to avenge the pilot. Speaking in Washington, President Obama condemned the killing.
1: It's just one more indication of the viciousness and barbarity of this organization. And I think we'll redouble the vigilance.